Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Horror Story is a podcast about strange and mysterious true horrors. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, host and producer of Horror Story. In the show, I have an episode called There's a Stranger in Your Walls. And it's about a woman that moved out of her home because she thought it was being haunted. But the truth happened to be even scarier than the ghosts. Other stories dive deep into the supernatural, like the one of the most infamous cases of real ghosts, called The Haunting in San Pedro. But if you're into mysteries, learn about the pilot who disappeared in the sky. All of these and more are available on Horror Story right now, with more episodes coming out every single week. You can search for the podcast by typing in Horror Story on your podcast app right now. The show is the one with the yellow letters. I'll see you over there on Horror Story. True Scary Story is a podcast about personal, terrifying stories dealing with the paranormal. True accounts from people who live through strange and supernatural experiences, told directly by them. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, and for years I have been listening to stories from people who have shared their most frightening true experiences with me. There was one story recently called There's Something in the Closet, where Juanita tells us about her experiences growing up in a house where she would see objects physically move on their own, but the rest of her family would act as if nothing was happening. It wasn't until years later that she found out what the source of it all was, which makes me wonder... If you were to witness a haunting, who would believe you? Come find True Scary Story by typing it into your app right now. I'll see you over there on True Scary Story. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations 
with two auto adaptations of frightening fiction about vicious ventures and audacious attacks. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, standing in for my very good friend, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Corpse Child and Jay Adair are voice talents Jeff Sturdivant, Michael Klein, and Olivia Steele. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our Theater of the Minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale this evening is written by Corpse Child and is performed by Jeff Sturdivant. In it, a young boy ventures out into an abandoned world in search of a fabled amusement park, encountering terror along the way. Now, without further ado, I present to you The Promised Land. He woke up wiping the sleep from his little eyes. He squinted, straining his vision back into clarity. Morning? He wondered. He shuffled from the bundle of raggedy cushions he'd been sleeping on. He peeked through the blinds at the world outside. In doing so, he found that he was right. It was morning. The sun wasn't out. He'd never seen the sun before, only knowing it as the big yellow, smiling sky ball that he saw in his storybooks. The world outside was dark and desolate, devoid of any color or vibrance. Two things it hadn't possessed for close to a millennia now. It was quiet out there, despite it being the once all too lively city of New York, the Big Apple. Everything, everywhere, held a nearly suffocating cadence of dead silence. Yet to him it was simply morning, characterized by the parting of the clouds that were the hue of ash, allowing only for the slightest visibility. He quickly fixed the blinds back before hiding under his blanket again. He knew he couldn't look out there for long. If he did, they would see him. That's what mommy and daddy told him anyway. They seek the ones who peek, they used to say. Of course, what that meant exactly was still a bit of a mystery to him. What were they? What would happen if they saw him? Both were questions that, while he occasionally thought about, he never had the courage to seek answers to. All he knew was that the outside was dangerous, the inside was safe. That was all he needed to know. Well, for the most part. Like any boy his age, he always wondered what it could have been like out there, outside the walls of the continuously degrading apartment complex. He would imagine himself in the bright, lively environments pictured in the old coloring books he used to draw in. He would imagine himself running through fields of grass that stretched all across the horizon. Other times he'd climb and frolic about on a park playground, 
Of course, these were, again, only fantasies to him. As fictional as the great land of Oz, Mommy used to read to him about it at nighttime. He knew nothing about it, just like he didn't know what it was that would get him if they saw him. He just knew they were out there, while he had to stay in here, just like Mommy always warned him to. Mommy was always right. Mommy knew everything. Mommy told him about how the outside used to be beautiful, how the big yellow smiling ball was real, though it wouldn't really smile, and how that was how you'd tell it was daytime rather than the parting of the ash clouds that only gave a faint, faded semblance of illumination to an otherwise completely dark world outside. She told him about how there used to be other people who'd be outside too. She said even little boys and girls like him used to get together and play and have fun for hours until the sun would go down. There was none of that now. To the best of his knowledge, he was the only person around, little or otherwise. It had been this way for as long as he could remember. This life, the quiet, colorless world outside he viewed from the window. It was the same as the one he was first brought into. It would likely be the same when he became a grown-up, like Mommy and Daddy. He wondered, too, what that would be like being a grown-up. He remembered asking mommy or daddy how to be a grown-up. They'd tell him that being a grown-up meant learning how to take care of yourself and your own. While he didn't really know what that meant when they told him this, he would still learn in his own way when, about a week ago, mommy and daddy left the apartment, like they usually did, to scrounge the deserted alleys and other apartments long abandoned for whatever food usually canned chicken, spam, or beans, the latter of which he could never stand the taste of, as well as water and whatever medicines or first aid supplies they could find. He waited all day and all night for them, eventually crying himself to sleep, hungry, cold, afraid, and alone. Up to the present he's waited for them to return, only to still be alone come nightfall, when the clouds closed again, and the world outside would be engulfed in complete darkness. It was only a day or two prior that he finally told himself that he couldn't be sad anymore, that crying wouldn't save him now. He had to be a big boy, and big boys had to learn how to be okay without mommies and daddies around all the time. He went into the kitchen. He was hungry. He would have liked to have some of the peanut butter cheese crackers Mommy would occasionally find for him. He thought maybe there'd even be a Twinkie. He loved those. But no, there was neither. All that was left of the gathered canned foods that was kept in the kitchen, in front of the stove that hadn't worked in close to a decade and a half, were the canned beans. He stuck his tongue out, imagining how disgusting they tasted. Yet his tummy was also rumbling fiercely. He had to eat something. Even if it meant it had to be the canned baked beans, 
With this, he opened one of the three cans left and used a fork to dig right in. The beans were every bit as unpleasant as he expected. They were cold, mushy, and just generally didn't taste good. He'd have spat them back out immediately if he hadn't been so hungry. All he could think about was trying to fill his belly the best he could. So instead, he closed his eyes and tried to imagine that, instead of those nasty canned beans, they were Twinkies. Mashed up, pasty Twinkies. Of course, it didn't really make it much better for him. They still tasted nasty. But at the very least, it made the act of choking them down slightly more bearable. Once he'd eaten, he went into the living room and returned on Daddy's old radio. He always loved sitting in the living room and listening with Daddy to those old radio shows. Sometimes they'd tell stories of adventures, like pirates sailing the seven seas, or action ones, like cowboys chasing a train full of bandits, the Lone Ranger being one of his all-time favorites. Other times, the people on the radio would tell jokes that made Daddy laugh hard. He laughed too, even if he didn't actually know what they were talking about. He just thought it was funny whenever they heard them use a bad word. Couldn't repeat it, though. He flipped around for a while, finding most of the stations to be dead air. Come on, stupid radio, he said, beating the top of it with his fist. It was the same tactic Daddy always used when he had trouble getting it to work. Just gotta make it get its act right, hey little buddy? Suddenly, through the fuzz, a man's voice came through. Faintly, but still there. So come on down, folks. Bring the kids. I say bring the kids. The promised land. We've got fast rides, slow rides, we've got clowns. We got games, candy, prizes, and so much more, ladies and gents. So I say again, come on down to the promised land, where we promise nothing but a good time. He smiled. He always got excited hearing that commercial. The man's funny voice made him giggle. He always tried to imagine what the promised land would look like, what it would be like. The rides, the games, the prizes, the clowns. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. He remembered how he'd sometimes hear Mommy talk about that stuff. 
but he'd never seen any of it for himself. Mommy told him about how the games were always super weird, but if you won, you'd get a big stuffed animal. Just like Patches, the little blue bunny he slept with each night, but even bigger. She said the clowns were funny men, like the ones that said the bad words on the radio, who dressed up weirdly and did a whole bunch of silly things. Of course, what excited him the most, more than the games or the clowns, would be the candy. Mommy told him there was all sorts of it. Twinkies, too. She told him there was even a weird type of candy that felt like eating a pillow that had pretty colors. That always sounded funny to him. Eating a pillow? Who'd want to do that? All the same, it sent his little head spinning. He'd asked a few times before if he could go. He'd always wanted to go. Mommy always told him that she and Daddy would... Think about it. They were always just thinking about it. He grabbed his bunny and sat on the floor while the radio aired an episode of the Black Pirate Ship. Instead of listening to the radio, soaking in every bit of the adventure like he usually would, he couldn't stop thinking about it. The promised land. All the candy, all the rides, all the fun, all of it. He wanted it. He looked around the living room, sighing. I don't want to be in here anymore. He peered through the blinds into the dim, desolate outside. Why can't I go out there? Just once. He thought about how Mommy and Daddy always told him it wasn't safe outside. They said they were monsters out there, big and scary, and they liked to eat people especially little boys. He couldn't see any monsters out there, though. Of course, he knew Mommy and Daddy were always right no matter what. Mommies and Daddies know everything. But still, he wondered. He wondered what would happen. Just once, he thought. If just once, he went outside and got to go to the promised land. Oh, the fun he'd have. He'd ride on every ride. Mommy said some would spin him upside down and make crazy loops. Eat candy till he got a tummy ache. Play all the games. Win all the prizes. Do it all. If only just once. What if I go? He thought. He looked around. Mommy and Daddy hadn't come back yet. They wouldn't know, would they? He knew it wasn't right to disobey his parents, but he couldn't help himself. Just once. He could be back before they knew he was gone. He could have all the fun in the world, and Mommy and Daddy would be none the wiser. It was perfect. He could slip out now and be back by nighttime. Come on, Patches, he said, grabbing the blue bunny. We're going to go have an adventure. He opened the door that led into the hallway of the apartment complex. Like everything else outside, it was dark and quiet. He poked his little head out and looked around, scanning the hallway. 
No monsters here. He took a slow step out, then another. He stood in the hall for a moment. He thought it was spooky, standing alone in the empty, quiet hallway. He took a deep breath and held it, closing his eyes. He was a big boy now. Big boys were brave. Big boys weren't scared of the dark or monsters. His grip tightened on Patches' arm. You can do this. You're a big boy. He opened his eyes and went to the stairway at the other end. There at the balcony, overlooking the empty street below, he stood. He'd done it. He was finally outside. Now he'd get to go have fun in the promised land. He put on his most excited smile and bounded down the steps. Once down the steps, he sprinted down the dark, empty street. He ran until finally he started feeling cramps in his ribcage and stopped, out of breath. He turned and looked back where he came from. He couldn't see the apartment complex anymore. All there was were the disheveled remains of different stores, most of which had long since crumbled and fallen apart to a point beyond recognition. Ahead of him was much the same, with even a few empty cabs peppered in different spots. He recognized these because it was the same as the little yellow toy car Daddy found for his birthday one year. Daddy said people used to drive them around so they didn't have to walk everywhere. He said they were fast, too. Like, really fast. He peered in through the driver's side window. Seeing the inside up close like this, he thought it looked so cool. He imagined he was driving the deserted cab. When he tried to pull the handle to open it, though, it wouldn't budge. Locked, tight as a drum. Oh well, he thought, before continuing on down the street. As he walked, he thought about the radio ad. He kept it on repeat in his mind, memorizing it repeatedly, hearing the funny man say, Come on down, ladies and gents, to the promised land. That's right, you heard us right. The promised land is back, and we're bigger and better than ever. That's right, come on down. Same place, same time, folks. Right on the corner of 4th and Edberg. He kept repeating that in his head. 4th and Edberg. 4th and Edberg. 4th and Edberg. He started looking around, eyeing the street signs above him. He saw a bunch of different ones, but no 4th and Edberg. Still, he kept walking, chin raised up. The longer he walked, the more destitute his surroundings became. Big boy or not, he couldn't lie. It was spooky. More than this, it was still so quiet. Too quiet. No sounds could be heard, not even the breeze. No movement, no lights. Nothing. He was alone. A little fish in a giant ocean seeing it for the first time. He closed his eyes, took another deep breath, 
and held up patches. Smiling, he said, It's okay, buddy. We can't be far. We'll get to the promised land and have so much fun. He stopped when he heard a rustling noise coming from one of the alleys to his left. He jerked his head in the sound's direction. Immediately, his legs started shaking. His heart thumped hard against his chest. Uh, uh, hello? For a moment, there was nothing. Silence again. He stared at the alley. He couldn't see anything there, yet he heard it. Who's there? No answer. Suddenly, the rustling started again, joined by the sounds of something being knocked over. He was about to turn and take off running again when, from the darkness, a small orange kitten crept out. He stood, his heartbeat still trying to steady itself out. The kitten trotted toward him, mewing softly. He finally relaxed when it was about three feet from him. He liked kitties, even if this was the first real one he'd ever seen. The others being from his storybooks, like with the smiling sun. He waved to it. Hey there, what's your name? The kitten meowed in reply. He giggled and said, That's a funny name. I'm... He was cut off again when sounds of growling sounded from the alley. Instantly, his body seized again in panic. Before he could do or say anything, though, another figure bounded from the alley, pouncing and snatching the kitten before tearing into it with its teeth. His blood froze along with his body as he watched the creature rip apart the fluffy little kitty and devour it. The creature looked over to him. Its eyes were wide open, having no lids, yellow and bloodshot. It was thin and bony, its ribs pushing against brownish-gray skin that was horribly covered in scratches, gashes, and even missing entire patches in places, exposing its insides. It tore another huge bite of meat from the severed leg of the kitten before scrambling on all fours toward him. Instinct overrode fright, and he took off running down the highway. He ran quicker and harder than he ever had before. He didn't dare look back. He didn't need to. He could hear the thing strangled growling behind him, gaining on him. His legs ached, but he didn't care. He had to keep running. Eventually, he came upon a dead end at a two-way intersection. He threw his head in both directions. Going left would have led him toward another intersection, while the road to his right led toward a long, deserted construction zone. He didn't know which to pick, which he'd be safer in. But he had to choose, and quickly. Despite the numerous lacerations and lack of muscle tissue... The creature kept up with him effortlessly. He could hear it, closer and closer, right on his heels. He felt the creature's icy, stinky breath prick the back of his neck. He kept running, his eyes trained forward until cutting a hard right turn into the construction zone. His vision started clouding, 
His heart raced, jackhammering so hard that at any moment, it could very well have punched straight through his little chest. His legs burned now, threatening to give from beneath him. Still, he kept running. He had to keep running. Just a little bit further. He made it through the entrance and made his way toward the skeletal frame of what would have been a skyscraper. Something else he remembered reading about in his storybooks. Had it ever been finished? He got to it and peeked behind him. The creature was still coming in hot behind him, bearing pointed teeth and distending its weathered, disgusting jaw. His eyes went wide with panic, and he began frantically climbing the frame. He struggled, too small to even reach the next beam going up. The creature from below began scaling the frame after him, having a much easier time working its way up. He began hopping from one to the next, grabbing and holding onto the beams while climbing them. He climbed higher and higher. The creature gained on him with each leap from one beam up to the next. He didn't know how high he'd climbed. He didn't even know how high he could keep climbing. It didn't matter. He knew he just had to keep going, or he'd be eaten like the kitty. He'd made it to the second beam from the top of the building frame when he felt it shift beneath his feet. This caused him to finally make the mistake of looking down. Seeing now just how far from the ground, almost 300 feet, he froze, trembling. To him, he felt himself peering down into a dark pit with piles of fallen, discarded steel beams waiting for him to flatten himself against. Beneath him, only about three or four beams down, the creature continued creeping upward for him. He didn't know what to do now. He knew the creature would surely have him if he didn't move, but if he did, he could fall and get pancaked at the bottom, shattering every single bone in his little body. He was stuck, the creature got closer, closer, up one beam, then the next. The frame started to wobble. Its screws, through decades of weathering and rust, finally gave out from the constant pressure. He clutched patches to his chest as the creature finally latched onto the beam he was on. The beam began to shift again. He turned and tried to jump up to the beam above him, when the one he was on finally gave out. One pop of the rusted screws sent he and the creature plummeting straight down to the bottom. They both smacked against the ground with a resounding thud. For a moment, everything was blurry. Shapes and colors were all just a weird mishmash and everything sounded like he had balls of cotton stuffed into his ears. He felt dizzy. Everything spun around him. Eventually, things finally went dark. He felt himself all alone again in the dark. He felt cold. He didn't know where he was anymore. He didn't know what anything was anymore. He just knew that he was scared again all alone in the dark. 
He thought of Patches. He was there, sure, but he'd fallen too. Patches is probably hurt too, he thought. He thought then of the apartment, of home. He thought of Mommy and Daddy. He thought of all the pictures he'd seen in his storybooks. Bright, colorful places with the big yellow ball in the baby blue sky, smiling at him each morning. He thought of the radio man's funny voice, enthusiastically reciting, So I say again, come on down to the promised land, where we promise nothing but a good time. He saw himself there, surrounded by all the big rides that had spin him upside down. In his hand was Patches, looking good as new. Along with the rides, he'd be flocked around by the clowns, who would tell him funny jokes and make him laugh his little head off. He'd play fun games while stuffing himself with all the Twinkies he could ever want. And the best part? Right there with him, smiling, would be Mommy and Daddy, showering him with all the love they hadn't been able to for a whole week now. He felt it. He was happy. He'd made it. He was now in the promised land. And the best part? He'd never, ever have to leave. Our second tale of the evening is written by Jay Adair and is performed by Michael Klein and Olivia Steele. In it, a vicious mob executes a horrific plan to attack a farmhouse of witches. Joe, a reluctant participant in the proceedings, encounters one of the family members while trying to escape the violence. And without any further ado, I present to you, For the Good of the People, Think they're gonna hear us c c coming? You're the loudest of all, Joe, dragging that bum leg of yours. Joke tried to keep the volume down. It seemed deafening in the quiet night air, but he continued to kick up gravel as he hobbled down the dirt road, struggling to keep up with the mob. They were seventeen strong, so it was probable that their approach would not go unnoticed. The rest of the group didn't seem concerned. They all had bellies full of whiskey and violence in their eyes. Their implements of destruction were varied. Shovels, pitchforks, knives, shotguns. Father Farrell had abstained from the earlier nerve-strengthening festivities, but he was in tow nonetheless with an axe slung over his shoulder. Like the others, he believed with all of his heart that the Laveau family were a plague on their community. Tonight, the Society for Peace and Justice, as they had labeled themselves earlier that evening, would cure that plague. After much discussion, the society had declared the Laveau family to be witches. The unease of the townspeople began shortly after the Laveau family moved to town, and old Mrs. Murray claimed that she had known them almost 30 years prior, in the 1860s. The issue was, not only had they gone by another name at that time, but more importantly, they all looked exactly the same as they did at present. They had made a deal with the devil, she claimed, 
for in exchange for immortality. Mrs. Murray also claimed that the family needed to perform certain deeds and rituals to preserve this sinister agreement. This fueled rumors of the family's acts of sabotage to other farms and their theft of property from neighbors. The entire Laveau clan wore odd, dark clothing and they never attended Sunday Mass. Some say they chanted wicked devotions to Satan throughout the night and used Satan's dark powers to curse other farmers. It couldn't have been coincidence that their arrival to town just one year prior had coincided with the worst crop loss in the town's history. Joe was a simple man, and he nodded and tagged along that night without voicing an opinion on the matter. However, Joe did not exude the confidence of the other men. His heart had been beating furiously against his ribcage, and sweat had been dripping into his bloodshot eyes for hours prior to their departure for the farm. When the candles in the windows of the Laveau farmhouse came into view, Joe's stomach turned, and a hush fell over the group. The men spread out as planned when they got to the yard. Joe approached a small side window with O'Sullivan and Father Farrell. Their spy had informed them that this was the window that led to the kitchen. Joe crouched outside the window and waited, his head flying this way and that, spooked by every shadow. A moment later, they heard Riley's chirping sound come from the opposite side of the house. This was the signal to go. Father Farrell jumped up and thrust the end of his axe through the window, smashing it to bits. O'Sullivan jumped through the window without hesitation. Father Farrell's pants became entangled on the jagged shards of glass around the window frame, obscuring Joe's view into the kitchen. Joe heard what sounded like a chair tumbling over and heard a voice. What is the meaning of blam? The blare and the flash from O'Sullivan's shotgun almost made Joe tumble back onto the grass. After Father Farrell untangled himself, Joe crawled through the window and almost fell flat on his face, immediately as his boots slid on the slick floor. He looked down to see the remains of what must have been Will Laveau. Most of his face was missing, his skull in chunks all over the kitchen floor. The dead man's body twitched, as if making an effort to fight off his attackers. Joe crumbled, gagging. He tried to catch his breath while the audio of the macabre scene in the surrounding rooms faded in and out. His senses overwhelmed and failing him. The determined footfalls of heavy boots echoed through the house and seemed to surround Joe. Intermittent screams from members of the Laveau family infested his ears like leeches as he bore witness to their slayings. There were eight family members, and by the sheer volume of the shrieking and shouting, Joe figured most of them had already been hunted down in those initial few moments as he pathetically crouched in the kitchen. A man burst through the door into the kitchen, shakily flinging the barrel of his gun towards Joe. Joe pedaled backwards into the pantry, knocking shelves of jarred fruit onto the floor. Joe, what the hell are you doing in here? It was Riley. J just l l looking for them, the last ones? Check the back rooms, now. Riley grabbed Joe by the collar and shoved him into a small side hallway before marching off toward the front of the house. Sweat dripped from Joe's brow as he crept through the dark, narrow hallway. He wanted to run, to slip off into the fields and abandon the scene while the others were distracted, but he had nowhere to go. He relied on the people in this town, and he relied on his farm. He hadn't been eager to go to the farmhouse, but he had aimed to choose the side of the Lord, like Father Farrell told him he was doing, though this didn't seem too godly to him. He noticed a small, narrow staircase at the end of the hall. Doubting that any of the men had even noticed it, he realized that it might present an opportunity to hide out. He would feign a search, come back down to the main floor once all the vicious noise had died out. 
Clambering up the staircase on all fours, Joe stepped into what he assumed would be an attic, but was surprised to see an expansive bedroom. He was even more surprised to see a member of the Laveau family sitting cross-legged at the far end of the room, her dark silhouette lit by a single candle directly behind her. This was the teenage daughter, Angelica, Joe realized. Despite the chaos below, Angelica sat, unflinching, in her stained white sleep dress, her head down and long greasy black hair obscuring her face. Did she realize what was going on right below her? Then Angelica spoke. The voice seemed to surround Joe, and he wasn't sure that it was coming through the mess of dark hair at first. It sounded like a warped combination of the high-pitched voice of a young girl and the raspy, rumbling voice of an enraged, colossal man. You evil men. How dare you enter our home and place judgment upon us? I'm, I'm sorry, Joe stammered. I, I never meant- Instead of blaming us for your many problems, Perhaps you should all turn to a mirror. She stood up slowly on bare feet and started taking slow steps towards Joe. You are oppressors of the oppressed. She continued. You all lie, cheat, and steal. You all avert your eyes to the crimes of others to protect your positions in this horrific community. Little miss? Uh, hand to heart, I never wanted to hurt nobody. Joe tried to back away as Angelica moved closer, but he felt paralyzed, as if his boots were made of concrete. You put the blame on our family. But I will show you the truth, simpleton. You will see what you and your people have done. Angelica's head flew upright and she bared her teeth as she jumped at Joe from across the room, flying at him with tremendous speed. Her hands cracked into Joe's temple and he fell onto the dusty floor. And there was darkness. Wake up, Joe! Come on, you bastard! Wake up! A violent scene came into view as Joe slowly opened his eyes. He flung his head back in a futile attempt to escape the heat coming from the burning farmhouse. In doing so, he saw that he was being dragged by the arms away from the fire by O'Sullivan. Joe began flailing his arms wildly and O'Sullivan let him go, dropping down to the grass, exhausted. Joe scrambled onto his hands and knees and crawled back further to escape the intense fire. You stupid ass, you almost got yourself killed! O'Sullivan screamed. You were damn lucky I saw you up there when we were lighting it up. They must have killed them all, including Angelica, Joe realized. He turned to see the members of the Society for Peace and Justice spread out across the lawn most soaked in the blood of the Laveau family. He saw a range of emotions from the group. Some smiled and laughed, some looked somber, and some looked bloodthirsty and ready to move on to another home for more carnage. Without warning, Joe felt an urge to speak, and he did so more clearly and confidently than he ever had in his entire life. I have seen your misdeeds as clearly as I see you all now. The sins against God were not committed by this poor family, but by you, the men stood, mouths agape. Most couldn't recall ever hearing Joe string together a proper sentence, so his words astonished them to silence. You accuse this family of crimes only to conceal your own wrongdoings, like Patrick here. Joe pointed an accusatory finger and strode towards the young man. I know it was you who torched O'Sullivan's barn. You were angry and felt that he didn't pay you enough for those deliveries. 
O'Sullivan raised an eyebrow towards Patrick. That true, son? Oh, he's just talking is all. No way I done that. Patrick replied. The men shifted uneasily. Joe was a simpleton, but not a liar. It was too bad that we can't know for sure, huh, Sullivan? Joe continued. If only someone were there to witness the crime, like maybe your wife? She should have been there, right? Did you ever wonder why she was nowhere to be found when you heard about the fire and rushed home from the pub? Her explanation about running errands never really made sense. I suppose she didn't have much time to get her story straight when she was busy keeping the sheets warm in Riley's bed. O'Sullivan furrowed his brow. How did you know about... What is this? He trailed off and started pacing. Then he cocked his gun and lowered the barrel at Riley. You son of a bitch! He spat. The men grabbed O'Sullivan. Riley tried to grab at his gun. As the men struggled with each other, Joe strode between them, loudly listing off other men's transgressions one after another. Theft, sabotage, violence, rape. As the crimes grew in number, the men grew angrier and more violent. With weapons already stained with the blood of the Laveau family, the men turned on each other, and the front lawn of the farmhouse became a battleground. Joe sauntered the perimeter, casually stating crime after crime until he was silenced by a knife to the back. Head throbbing and heavy, Joe fought to open his eyes and focus. He didn't have the strength to lift himself up, so he laid on the grass and stared at the farmhouse, still burning, though with less intensity now. Something moved in front of him, completely blocking his view of the farmhouse. A dirty white dress. Tangled black hair tickled Joe's face as Angelica bent down to get closer. She whispered to him, her voice now lacking any signs of aggression or abnormality. Joe heard only the soft, sweet voice of a young girl. Good work, simple Joe. All of them, dead and gone, she said. Several pairs of boots fell in behind Angelica. Joe looked around her and was shocked to see the other members of the Laveau family, mutilated but alive. It appeared their bodies were repairing themselves. Even Will Laveau, whose face had been in pieces on the kitchen floor just a short time before, was standing, staring down at Will as his face gradually melded back together. Your friends were right, Joe. We are different, Angelica said. But we never made a deal with the devil. We've just always been like this. We've been moving around for centuries and thought this was a good town with good folks. I guess we were wrong. She looked around at the gruesome scene. Looks like you'll have to explain yourself here, Joe. Good luck. Angelica turned with her family. Joe laid motionless, watching them as they slowly disappeared into the neighboring cornfield. Joe's enhanced intellect faded as the family vanished from view. His thoughts transformed from clear and solid into the jumbled and confused mush they were when he had arrived at the farm earlier that night. Stumbling to his feet, Joe started the long walk back towards town, trying to think of what he would tell everyone as the corpses rotted and the farm smoldered behind him.
I hope you enjoyed For the Good of the People, as written by Jay Adair and performed by Michael Klein and Olivia Steele. Now to the shows. Longtime resident and powerhouse, Otis Jiry. Hey, that's me. Says I have my very own show here on the network, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, which you can hear every Sunday night. That's true. And on that note, be sure to check out the other shows we offer on our network. We have Fear from the Heartland, featuring horror stories brought to you from the Heartland, airing Wednesdays. Eric Peabody's Horror Hill, a podcast dedicated to some of our deeper and darker tales. We hope you check them out. And Drew Blood's Dark Tales airs Fridays, featuring some southern down-home horror. Now... Our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And, of course, subscribe to us on YouTube where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. Consider signing up as a patron at our website as well, chillingtalesfordarknights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host for the evening, Otis Jiry, and as always, it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs>